2: To
3: Good evening welcome Welcome to the Nook and show 13, oh my, of Tales to Terrify. Come in, come in. We've got a full plate tonight, so doff your hat, settle in, grab something to drink. Oh, okay. I'm your host, Lawrence Santoro. The name was on the bell downstairs, but I'm working now at being a little less coy. Uh, A week or so ago, uh, just after we cast our second of the Bram Stoker-themed show's that time including my reading of Stephen King's now Stoker Short Fiction Award-winning Herman Woke is Still Alive, uh, you couldn't have done it without me. I had a note from one of Mr. King's assistants saying that they really liked the rendition of the tale and wanted to post a note on their website and would I mind saying who it was that narrated the piece— I don't remember what I would said on the show. I may have attributed it to one of my avatars, Roland, perhaps. Uh, anyway, I said that it was I myself who bodied forth the tale. Anyway, I should just say up front who does what, and there we have it. Oh, and of course, I had not to do with the award going to King – The ballots were all in, counted, tallied, and the names and titles already engraved on the doors of the little brown Stoker houses by the time our show slid through the Internet tubes. So anyway, I'm still Lawrence Santoro, and I have a tale in this week's show, read by me. So there. Under old business, if you haven't already heard, here are the Stoker finals— Uh, For the sake of time, I'll read the names of the recipients only, and you can take it as read that they're all for superior achievement. So when I say the award for novel goes to Joe McKinney for Flesh Eaters from Pinnacle Books, you will understand the HWA recognized Joe's superior achievement in novel. So here it is. Novel Flesh Eaters by Joe McKinney from Pinnacle Books. First novel, Isis Unbound by Alison Bird from Dark Regions Press. There was a tie in the young adult novel category. The Screaming Season by Nancy Holder from Razor Bill and Dust and Decay by Jonathan Maybury from Simon Schuster. Books for Young Readers shared the award. Graphic novel, Neonomicon by Alan Moore from Avatar Press. In long fiction, that's works of 7,500 words or more. The Ballad of Ballard and Sandrine by Peter Straub. Conjunctions, 56. And as mentioned, the Short Fiction Award went to S. King for Herman Woke is Still Alive, which appeared in The Atlantic Magazine in May of 2011. Screenplay. American Horror Story, Episode 12. Afterbirth, it's by Jessica Scharzer uh, from 20th Century Fox Television. Hmm. Well, I'll not complain. I guess the show improved after I gave up on it in Episode 2. Fiction Collection, The Corn Maiden and Other Nightmares by Joyce Carol Oates from Mysterious Press. Anthology, Demons. Encounters with the Devil and His Minions, Fallen Angels and the Possessed, edited by John Skip from Black Dog and Leventhal. Nonfiction. I'm really happy to see this. Stephen King, a literary companion by Rocky Wood. And congratulations, Rocky. McFarlane and Company, Incorporated, were the publishers. The poetry collection went to... Linda Addison, How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend. I'll see if we can get some samples of Linda's work here in the future. She's a really good writer. I've known Linda for a number of years and uh, met her at a great convention called Nikon way back in the when. In addition, there were a few other awards given out. This year, a one time only award was given with in conjunction with the Bram Stoker family estate and the Rosenbach Museum and Library. They presented a special one time only vampire novel of the century award. And it went to, yes, Richard Matheson for his modern classic, I Am Legend. And if you only know of this story through the movies that have come out uh, under its name, please go read the book. Uh, This award was voted on by a jury chaired by Dracula expert Leslie S. Klinger and was sponsored by Jeremy Wagner. In addition, HWA presented its annual Lifetime Achievement Awards and its Specialty Press Awards. Rick Hadala and Joe R. Lansdale were both on hand to accept their awards. Uh, The Specialty Press Awards went to Derek Hussey of Hippocampus Press and Roy Robbins of Bad Moon Books, uh, the publishers of Slices of Flesh, of which we'll hear more anon. The Silver Hammer Award for Outstanding Services to the Horror Writers Association was voted by the organization's Board of Trustees to Guy Anthony DeMarco and the President's Richard Layman Service Award was given to HWA co-founder Karen Lansdale. We're going to jump now to an adjunct to the World Horror Convention this year. That was the place where at the world first tasted the slices of flesh I've been talking about, uh, the new flash fiction anthology from Dark Moon Books. Stan Swanson has given us 90 or so tiny tales of terror, All for a passel of good causes, so stop by Amazon or Barnes & Noble and pick up a couple of them. And if you remember, last week we had Tim LeBone's chilly tale of Mount Everest and the mountains dead. This week, well, you'll hear, Then, Just a Dream. A kid walks late afternoon. All alone, he walks along rail lines. He's walked for miles. For as long as he can remember the day, he's walked it. Trees push close to the tracks, one side, the other. A gravel drop-off leads to more trees. Pine covers the hillside, down to water, maybe a river, a lake. But something watery is off that side of the tracks and down there. He can smell it. The water, mud, fish, mosquito eggs, that kind of smell, rises from that side. "'It's summer afternoon, late summer, not hot, but warm, nice. "'No place to go from here but home. "'The smells, the feel of the gravel way underfoot, "'the scent of creosote bubbled up from the ties. "'It smells, yes, smells like home, like near home. "'He walks easily, not thinking, not looking, "'then a soft click, a sound that would be metallic "'if it weren't smothered by leather and the softness of his foot.' and he isn't walking. Now he looks. The boot his ankle is in is caught in a switch, Jesus Christ, along some track, middle of nowhere, a guy's walking along, alone, and thing just closes, thump, like that. It doesn't hurt. It didn't hurt. It simply holds him. Fact is, he couldn't tell if it closed on him or if he just stepped in it and got wedged there. Doesn't matter. Point is, he cannot get out. The line, this spur he's been walking, hasn't been used in... he looks. Well, not for a long time. Grass, small trees, and brush grows between the ties, up from the rails, and the rails, they're rusty, like nothing had rolled over them in months, years. So the guy, call him what he is, the kid, is not scared, not right away, not of being run down and shoved to furious pieces by a train. Only thing worries him now is how the hell is he going to get out? How's to get home, to eat? The more he twists his foot, the stucker he is. He laughs at that. (laughs) The stucker. And the switch. That's not moving, not opening. It's holding him like a retriever holds a duck, soft, but that's one duck that is not getting away. Takes him most of the afternoon to realize that, unless someone comes, unless the switch opens, he is part of that track, for the duration— Now, the fact that this is most likely an abandoned spur of some out-of-use line is starting to scare the hell out of him. He could die there, a really dull, pointless death. By the time it starts being dark, he is halfway convinced this is a dream. He hopes it is. Anyway, one of those things that once you realize you're just in bed, safe and stupid, you're going to wake up, go down, get you a sandwich and a beer from the PX. He starts to believe the day, the place, the rails, the switch, his foot really are pieces of a dream. He imagines a rabbit. And doesn't a damn rabbit run right across the tracks in the moonlight? He imagines a howling wolf. Yep. And a pack beyond the trees to take up the cry. Them, too. He looks into the now night sky. He just knows a meteor will flash, and one tears a bright, silent asshole right across the dipper. He plays with the night, adjusting it. Then he imagines a dinosaur nearby. Nearby, the woods start to creak, to crash, to thunder. Trees groan, then explode. A hundred feet down the line, a shadow like the world lumbers from the woods, crosses the track as flesh-wrapped pile-drivers might slip, slide the gravel down into the darkness, the trees and exploding water below. The dream shakes as it passes. Wow, the guy says, Thinking of what he'd brought into the world. This dream, the damn rail still shivered with a shiver. Without wanting to, he imagines a train, a metal and fire thing abroad on this abandoned, this unused spur line. Can't help that. In the distance, the dinosaur slides into the water and bubbles away forever. Into its place slides the sorrow of a steam whistle. In a few moments, pitifully few, the puff and chug of an engine rides the curve of rails. It's coming from ahead. The steel races toward him. The rails that hold him quiver they breathe against his leg tightening loosening but never giving up on him. He pictures the train, it's an old friend the train black, a steam giant at full blaze, shadow and fire in the night. He sees the length of it, the cars run bright with people eating, dozing, talking, planning, dreaming. A hundred of them, at least a hundred people, all with places to go, promises to keep, business, things they'll do and undo at the end of their line. And the boy, he is still stuck. He imagines the switch opening, releasing him. It does not. He comes quickly now to realize that... In this dream, this world, you can't unmake the life you've made. You can't take back the dinosaur, can't rezip the sky, unhop the bunny, unhow the wolf. And the train is near. He thinks, maybe ahead there's a bridge. There is a bridge. Yes, he remembers bridge, and he dreams it out Dreams the gorge and the bridge across it, a sliver of broken wood, downbending steel, hanging empty space between the train and his own trapped self. Then, then he thinks maybe, maybe this dream is only the dream of someone, someone "'On the train, the train heading his way, is dreaming this. "'Maybe he's on board, home from the war, now safe and waking, "'and the world is soft and too small. "'It's a compartment of a train, the train.' The train! It's night. His leg is asleep. The world is a window, a black mirror with only him and this little rushing room in it. Ahead, the engine whistle blows. They're going so fast that his compartment catches the shriek, devours it, spits it pastward. The whistle blows again. His body presses into the seat at his back. The train screams with stopping, trying to, at least. The whistle rushes on eighty, ninety miles per hour, all the steel and flesh around him strain toward zero, working for stillness in a length of track too small to catch that much quiet. Oh Christ, what the hell? The young man looks out the window. He wonders Is the bridge out? Ahead. Is there a bridge? A bridge or something else, something on the track. And without thinking, he knows there is. He knows for sure there is a bridge, but does not want to think about it. He knows for sure something else is there. The bridge and something. How high, how long, how deep, how rocky, how intact. And has he left the war, that place? Is this the dream? Could this be the dream? Could this be Where he's not, could this be something he should wake from or not wake from? What the hell would happen if if this is still not home, not a ride? Then he wakes, and it was a dream, a goddamn dream. Then Just a Dream was written for no reason while I was working on something else. I put it aside without thought, one effort, fast as I could type it, and that was it. A few years later, I read it almost by accident at a World Horror Con, and it won a Flash Fiction Award. Since then, Tony C. Smith has cast it on the Starship Sofa, he published it in the Starship Sofa Stories, and so on. It's now out in both my collection, Drink for the Thirst to Come, from Silverthought Press, and in Slices of Flesh. So I just had to hear how it sounded in the nook on Tales to Terrify. I read it tonight for the simple reason that we didn't have another story from Slices of Flesh all prepped and ready this week. So I hope you liked it. Moving along, I'm happy to turn over the reader's chair right now to Martin Munt for another of the Munt Speaks segments. On this episode, Marty takes apart and rebuilds the recent Avengers seed story from
2: Marvel movies, Thor. Not a regular movie review. Thor. Warning, I spoil plot points in this review so don't blame me if you keep listening. I had high expectations for Thor. I really couldn't tell you why. A Norse god hitting stuff with a really big giant hammer isn't a premise that should have inspired high expectations in me, but somehow it did. I blame the pernicious, unrelenting hammer blows of advertising, which made Thor seem very appealing. Truly, yea and verily, when it came to the god of thunder advertising, I regressed to about nine years old. I can only shrug. I am a sucker, a con man's wet dream. I know there's a hooker with a heart of gold out there somewhere, and she's got my credit card. I am certain she will mail it back to me tomorrow because she told me so. I had high expectations for Thor because the advertising told me so. I knew it had a big budget. I knew a big budget would translate into a really, really big, big giant hammer. How could such a movie go wrong? They were going to be able to afford to put words like splat on the screen whenever the hammer hit things. And Kenneth Branagh was directing it. How could such a movie go wrong? Wait a second. Kenneth Branagh? The Shakespeare guy? I mean, don't get me wrong, I like Shakespeare just fine. Richard III is my favorite piece of writing in the English language. But as I recall, except for the sledgehammer duel between Buckingham and Richard, it's mostly hammer-free. And Branna was fantastic in Wild Wild West, but my high expectations were at such a very high height based at least partly on the idea that I was expecting something like Iron Man with a hammer. I had expected a superhero action adventure roller coaster smash-em-up hypo-to-the-heart pure adrenaline shock therapy movie thrill ride. Directed by the Shakespeare guy? I unbuckled my seatbelt. Maybe this wasn't going to be the bumpy ride I had expected. Maybe the hammer would have a speaking role. To smite or not to smite, that is the question. The sudden emergency downshifting of mental gears wrenched my mind in ways I am still struggling to assimilate. I didn't get a superhero roller coaster techno duper hallucinophone thrill ride. "'I got a pagan winter solstice fruitcake of a movie "'with bits and pieces of wheat and berries and nuts and things "'all smushed together into a more or less integrated loaf soaked in mead. "'And the credits had not yet finished running. "'Okay, okay, enough of being a negative Niflheim already. "'What did I like about Thor? "'I liked Chris Hemsworth, for starters. "'What can I say about him that the words big lug don't convey?' Of course, he also possessed a bit of obsessive, bloodthirsty, psychopathological ultraviolence to go with all the aw shucks, big luggishness. But let's not think about that. Really, let's not think about that. Thinking is antithetical to Thorish-type movies. One must simply make allowances for a Norse god. Maybe he ate babies, maybe not. He was never shown eating babies, so we can't be certain of it, though I, for one, wouldn't have been surprised if he did. But he does not quite galump over the line into sociopathic viciousness, and therein lies all the difference, because therein lies the chance for redemption. Thor is a big, violent lug who possesses the ability to channel his violence for good, but he cannot do it by himself, nor can his hammer do it for him. Enter Jane Foster, the character. But first, there is much heavy fruitcake loaf to consume. Plot happens, and Thor is eventually separated from his hammer, where he ends up on Earth to meet Natalie Portman, a.k.a. Jane Foster, the character. Yes, I have summarized. Why have I summarized? Because the summary covers a long, dark, Norse night of the CGI soul about giants and Asgard and gods and battles and such, much of which looks like leftover special effects from the planet Mongo scenes from the 1980 movie Flash Gordon. And, like I said, I don't want to be a negative Niflheim, all right? But if I were being a negative Niflheim, I might say that everything that takes place in Asgard, Jotunheim, wherever Hilf is sadly misplaced effort. And I don't like saying that. I wanted to be wowed. There's a big, thick slice of budget loaf here. I wanted to be wowed, but I was merely Ed. Anthony Hopkins as Odin? He wore a killer eye patch. This is what I remember of Odin the eye patch will not leave my mind. Other eye-patched characters swirl into view, demanding screen time in my head. Like General Chang from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, whirling in circles in his command chair, declaiming Shakespeare. And skinny, eccentric Japanese egghead Dr. Sarazawa, going mano a mano with Godzilla in Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Or Snake Plissken escaping from New York in Escape from New York. Or Captain Frankie Cook from Sky Captain in The World of Tomorrow, looking really hot. But none can truly compete with Odin, hammer-whisperer and narcoleptic. And I mean this literally. He literally whispers to his hammer, and he literally sleeps through part of his role. It started up with special effects, sure, but he's still sleeping. But maybe Mr. Hopkins is a method actor, and he actually fell asleep on the set. I can't say. I can't say I've never seen anyone sleep with more regal bearing than Mr. Hopkins. Christopher Plummer could no doubt have mustered a slumber of much greater quiet majesty, and Patrick McGowan of nobler condescending superiority, and Rowan Atkinson unquestionably of great comic comatose rigidity, and Sir Ian McKellen of somnolent benevolence. But in the end Mr. Hopkins' sleeping conveyed rest, quiescence, and even hibernations to the limits of my ability to appreciate it. I cannot go on. If I go on, I shall excite myself with exasperation, and then I shall certainly fall asleep. And then there's Rene Rousseau. Oh, my. What can I say about Miss Rousseau that the big, giant, slurping sound of a talent-sucking black hole glorping onto her considerable gifts and dragging them into an inescapable maw can't say better than me. I think the sound is this. Glorp. I like Miss Rousseau. I think she's a fine actress. Couldn't someone, therefore, have given her something to do if somebody went to the effort to get her into the movie in the first place? One assumes it's more difficult than pulling into the SAG building parking lot in a pickup and asking for day laborers. Maybe they could have asked her to knit in the background of a few scenes, or do cartwheels here and there, perhaps yo-yo tricks to Esquivel music. Something? Anything? Because, honestly, I think Mamie Van Doren could have handled this role if she'd have been led around the set with cue cards and had her gum confiscated before every take. Ah, well. Why Anthony Hopkins? Why Rene Rousseau? I asked myself that during the movie, after the movie, and while writing this. My answer? Glorp. But I was not going to be a negative Niflheim. I was, in fact, summarizing. I had mentioned how Thor had been banished to Earth, separated from his beloved hammer, and been made into a mortal. Although a really, really buff mortal who made women drool and men want to draft him onto their fantasy football teams. Enter Natalie Portman, a.k.a. Jane Foster, the character. Actually, Jane had been in the movie from the beginning, but as far as I'm concerned, the actual interesting movie only started when actual interesting human bits started to happen, mostly between Thor and Jane. So at any rate, when Thor shows up, or more specifically, slams down, and to my eternal disappointment, when he fell from the sky and crashed into the earth, making his grand entrance, the filmmakers didn't plaster the word splat across the screen. I'm just saying is all. Maybe in the DVD extras. I can only hope. At any rate, he and Jane began to get to know each other. So, Jane learns about Thor, Thor learns about Jane... Thor goes off in search of his hammer, and then Thor fails to achieve the goal of reacquiring his hammer. Yes, that's right, Thor fails. Thor fails as a human on a human scale, not on a CGI scale on a CGI battlefield with a Mongo Sky backdrop while chewing on the universal fruitcake loaf. Chris Hemsworth isn't wearing a helmet. He's not filmed from a helicopter from 600 yards away, flattening stuff with a big giant hammer. Hey! Hey! I think I just figured out why Kenneth Branagh is directing this movie. Because there's finally some actual people in it, and you can actually see their faces, emoting and stuff. So then there's some more plot loaf involved with the government, and Agent Coulson and such, and then Thor and Jane end up back in town. Thor's a failure. Jane is sad. Everything is grim. Have I mentioned the town? I never caught the name of the place, but it didn't look like anything more than a wide fishtail in the road somewhere in Nevada or New Mexico, so I'll call it Tucum Sparkswell, New New Mexico, just outside of Area 50. I'm sure this location is clarified in the comic books, but I last read a Thor comic in the 60s, so I'm a little behind on the backstory. It's the kind of town that looks like a place where graboids live. To so me, these bits in Sparks Sparkswell were the good bits because Thor is forced to deal with humans as a human. I can sympathize with that, as I hope we all can. If only all the Asgardians, Odin, Frigga, Loki, and the rest, had been forced to deal with humans as humans, then the whole movie might have been interesting. So I kind of rewrote the movie in my head. Imagine if Odin had been a uranium prospector in the hills outside Tukum Sparkswell, and Frigga owned the diner in town, and they were still married, but they didn't talk anymore because they'd grown apart, as gods will do when they're trapped in a backwater plane of existence like new Nivexaco. Did I say trapped? Well, yes, I did, because the portal to other worlds, or whatever it's called, I also didn't catch the name of that device got damaged by a hydrogen bomb in the 50s, and now the gods are stuck here pretending to be humans, and Thor and Loki don't even know they're gods. Loki is an international billionaire who wants to buy up all the land around Tukum Sparkswell for a private spaceport, which puts him at odds with his old man, the uranium prospector, who's really searching for the portal. And Thor is a professional quarterback, my nod to Flash Gordon, who gets injured and comes home to Tukum Sparkswell to rehab. And then Agent Coulson finds the portal, which is blocked by the hammer. And so on and so on. It practically writes itself. Of course, I'm sure none of my crap is in the comic books, and so all the fans will hate it and want to kill me. And did I mention that the movie has so far grossed $448 million at last count, according to imdb.com? So really, what do I know? Ah, well. But anyway, all that aside, even in my rewritten version, there can still be a really big giant CGI battle if that will make everyone happy. Because it turns out that Odin jammed the hammer in the portal and blew it up with the hydrogen bomb in order to stop the giants from coming through and wreaking havoc on Earth. So Coulson is mucking about with forces he doesn't understand, but now that Thor has learned humility from being injured... And Love, from Jane the character, he can take the hammer and stop the giants who come through the portal after Coulson mucks things up. So now you get the big giant battle. With giants and humans and armies and gods and missiles and dolphins with frickin' lasers on the heads for all I care, because vast, sprawling video game battle royales populated by indistinguishable monsters usually don't interest me so much. Thank the gods the real Thor the movie bucked this trend because Thor the movie's actual computer-generated giants were fully realized individuals all, so much so that each one could have been picked out of a lineup by a traumatized seven-year-old, or profitably psychoanalyzed by Sigmund Freud himself, or recognized by Helen Keller using only the backs of her thumbs. And smooth? I mean, honestly... Armies of CGI characters usually amble around the screen as if they're wearing fully loaded diapers. But Thor's giants? Have you ever seen soft ice cream curling out of a dispenser and slipping with perfection into a sugar cone? Thor's giants were smoother. Smoother than Richard Burton wrapping everything Welsh in his being around Fernhill. Smoother than Helen Keller? Oh, hell, no, sorry, I can't do this. I don't want to be a negative Niflheim. Really, I don't, but I can't help it. I'm lying. The giants moved like they had poop in their pants. The battle royale with giants in the land of Computerheim was just as feeble and cartoonish as almost every other one of these CGI movie battles I've ever seen. I guess this is why people can't stop using their eyeberries and black phones at the movies. What's the difference? Oh, well. On the positive side, the battle royale did end which also ends my lengthy and pointless rewriting of the entire screenplay for the movie. You're welcome. In my defense, I will explain that I have this mental problem. When I get bored, I start making stuff up in my head in order to keep my brain alive. I can't help myself. I enjoy thinking. I know, I know. I said previously that thinking is antithetical to the movies I go see. But like I also said, I have mental problems. This leads me to rewrite movies, books, TV shows, oftentimes while they're still running. Obviously, I had this mental problem with Thor. But I insist I will not be a negative Niflheim. So meanwhile, back in Tucum Sparkswell, Thor has failed to reacquire his hammer because he is unworthy of it, because he is, essentially, a big giant doofus. Jane is sad because Thor has realized that he has lost his best friend, his hammer, because he is, in fact, a big giant doofus. Thor is sad. Jane is sad. Darcy, Jane's best friend, is sad. And quite frankly, when all the pretty people are sad, that makes all of us in the audience, who are not nearly so pretty as the people on screen, sad as well. After all, who likes to see the pretty people sad? Well, unless the pretty people are ass-wipes, like the people on the CW and the various Jersey cable shows, in which case schadenfreude applies. But Thor and Jane and Darcy aren't asswipes, They're big lugs and nice girls. So we're sad. And I credit the skilled hand of Kenneth Branagh, himself very pretty, as he demonstrates that Thor and Jane and Darcy are very, very pretty, but not so pretty as to be obnoxious asswipes who we should like to see shot in the face and genitals with nail guns. And, of course, credit must also go to Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, and Kat Dennings as well. Yay for them. And then the destroyer shows up to kill Thor. Okay, now maybe the image of the destroyer was taken directly out of the Icelandic sagas or someplace else equally frosty and chant-heavy, but to me he looked pretty much like a slightly modified version of Gort from the day the Earth stood still. So, modified Gort goes crashing through Tukum Sparkswell and Thor's god friends, whose names I never caught, so I'll call them the Asgardian Special Forces. Show up and fight him. Except that they get their useless asses tossed around like so many rusted out sobs. Enter Thor, minus hammer. Thor stands up to Modified Gort with nothing but absolute selflessness. Yeah, that's right, you heard me. Your ass is mine, Modified Gort. I'll pop a cap in your big metal. Wait a second. Did I say absolute selflessness? Are we talking about Thor or Jesus here? Let me double check. Hang on, hang on. "'Jesus, no. Thor, yes.'" Thor offers his own life to Modified Gort in exchange for the lives of all the pitiful humans, including the very pretty Natalie Portman, and the Asgardoid special pussy forces, and Modified Gort graciously accepts said sacrifice and kills Thor. Jane weeps over him, again with the sadness. "'It's actually quite moving.'" He's such a big lug, you pretty much forget about his psychopathological bloodlust, especially since he's really cut and quite good-looking. And Jane loves him. So, as I said, despite the fact that in a relatively sane, peaceful society, he's kind of a lunatic, it's still kind of moving that he's dying. Damn the insidious abilities of Shakespearean film directors to toy with our emotions. And so, yes, even his big giant hammer finally feels sorry for him. Now he's worthy, and so the hammer comes to him, shooting like a missile dosed with an entire case of Viagra to his aid. Remember I referenced Freud previously? Freud would have loved this scene. Oh, and it brings him back to life, too. And then? Then Thor proceeds to flatten modified gourd in a jerk metal with gleeful abandon, just like everyone's been waiting to see. A real crowd-pleaser or maybe a real groundling pleaser from Mr. Branna's point of view. I'm pretty sure the words splat and clang and zlork appeared on screen during the gort kicking, but I just missed them. But whatever, yay for Thor, god of pounding stuff into jerk metal with a big giant hammer. Exit destroyer, stage left, stage right, and stage everywhere else in pieces. Thor then reveals himself in all his Asgardite glory, and Jane thinks he's hot. Of course, Thor then has to leave, because there's computer-generated trouble up in Asgard, but he says he'll be back. Now, really, how many times has Jane heard that one before? So Thor leaves, and the movie pretty much ends there, as far as I'm concerned. There's more mucking about in Asgard. Giants, loci, blah, 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 yargo, bargo, whatever, but we're done on Earth and we're done with people. Thor's got his head and hammer wired together as much as he's ever going to, and even though he still solves his problems by flattening things, in this case the portal, so he can't get back to Earth and see Jane anymore, that absolute selflessness thing got to be a real bad habit with him. And then the movie's over. Oh, except for one other thing. That mental problem of mine afflicted me again while Thor was flattening stuff in Asgard although I think Rene Russo got to pick up a sword briefly, which was nice. I hope she at least got to keep it after filming wrapped, and maybe some of her costumes, which looked nice on her. So I started to think about the music... And how what the movie really needed was a blaring, obnoxious, seriously painful rock and roll soundtrack. Something straddling the border just this side of power metal and jaw-dropping surreal, weird rock and roll. Something impossible to get out of your head for days after hearing it. Something that sounds like it's at 11 when it's at 4. Something to make a deaf man bleed anally from the vibrations alone. That's right. Something by Queen. Like Flash Gordon. Or Highlander? Who could forget such soundtrack wizardry as Flash? Or who wants to live forever? Clearly not me, since here it is decades on, and I still can't get those wounded Godzilla whales out of my head. That's what Thor needed. Now I know what you're saying already. Queen is no more. Freddie Mercury, he of those glorious Godzilla tonsils, has passed beyond the veil into the veil. And that is true enough. But, and this is a crucial but, Brian May is still with us. And that means his smoking runaway turban guitar is an ideal place to start a fantasy soundtrack for Thor. So, in the spirit of bleeding anuses everywhere, and in the sure knowledge that it will never happen, I propose Brian May on guitar, with Rob Halford on vocals, and Lemmy on bass, and vocals too as a counterpoint to Mr. Halford. Now, I realize I'm showing my age with these picks, but I'm going to resist choosing Albert Snapbeat McElroy, King of the 78s, as my drummer. So you should be thankful. And don't bother running to Google. I made him up. And they wouldn't have to score the entire movie, either. I think their music would be best delivered in small doses, like electroshock therapy. Perhaps just a couple of super-scorching, smoking-sweet songs, like Thor's theme song, call it... Every problem is a nail. And then maybe Thor and Jane's love theme. Call that one Thor and Jane's love theme. Imagine it. The year is 2038 and a bunch of 50-something guys are sitting in a business meeting and they still can't get Rob Halford's high notes from Every problem is a nail out of their heads. How awesome would that be? Right. I forgot a drummer. Drummers I don't know well. If any drummer experts out there care to suggest an appropriate drummer who would mesh well with Mr. May, Mr. Halford, and Mr. Lemmy for my fantasy band, please feel free to comment. But please, not that guy from Def Leppard. That's just stupid. So, okay, did I enjoy Thor? Overall, I'd say yes, I did. Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman pretty much overwhelmed all the negative Nifflehamish stuff for me in the end. So I guess I'd go see it again. And if they put me on the DVD commentary track as an expert commentator, delivering all my insightful insights as a complete nobody from flyover country, well, then I'd even have to consider springing for the super special director's cut when it comes out. Just in case Kenneth Branagh is listening to this, hint, hint.
3: I'll have the chair back now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Next week, by the way, next Friday, in fact, it'll be early, so I'll be back in the nook before midnight. Marty and I'll share the reader's seat at the Stella Espresso Symposium Series here in Chicago. We begin at 730 and end at 930. Tween times, we'll be reading, talking, hawking our wares and urging the world to love us. That's in Chicago, Friday the 13th, and what could go wrong there, at 1259 West Devon. If you're within a dozen miles, I hope to see you. Poetry. Again, it's back. Haven't had any for a while. So, here's another by Bruce Boston. It's called...
4: Dark Rains, Here and There One When she was a girl in Myanmar, the dark rains fell suddenly in great sheets of water and sound in the heated afternoons. Thunder would rattle the tin roof, and the kitchen would often flood. When the dark rains fell on Myanmar, she lived in poverty beneath the tyranny of a state beyond redemption— When the dark rains fell on Myanmar, the sky gave up its color. Shadows would disappear, for there would be one great shadow covering everything. 2. When she was a woman in San Francisco, the dark rains would fall slowly and steadily for days at a time, turning the pastel houses gray beneath an even grayer sky. When the dark rains fell on San Francisco, the tires of passing cars hissed endlessly on the wet pavements. When the dark rains fell on San Francisco, she lived with passion and belief and drug-fueled flights to worlds unfathomed. 3. When she was a wanderer in space the dark rains fell many ways on many different worlds. When the dark rains fell in the labyrinth of canyons that laced the southern hemisphere of Epsilon Iridani 9, they danced this way and that in constantly shifting whirlpools of wind. When the dark rains fell in the light gravity of Fomalhut's only habitable moon, it was in large limpid drops clinging to the cilia and limbs of overarching trees. When the dark rains fell on many different worlds, here and there, she learned to live with love bright as a rocket's flare, and loss deep as a singularity. 4. When she was a senora in the high Mexico desert in the steady days of her peace and resolution, she would stand at the screen door just before dusk. She would listen to the insects ticking against the dusty metal crosshatch and watch the light from a low red sun encroaching on the deep shade of the porch. When the sky remained cloudless on the high desert, When life seemed dry and spare as the land around her, she found herself watching for one more dark rain she could walk in.
3: Thank you, Bruce, for letting us read that. Dark rains here and there is from Bruce's collection. Dark Matters from Bad Moon Books, in 2010. That was a Stoker winner that year. It also took second place in the Risling Award long poem category in 2011. And thank you to Celia for reading that. To Celia, uh, you've heard her before. She's my wife. She's a poet, an artist a retired teacher, and the love of my life. Our main fiction for the week is The Blue Healer by Weston Oaks. Weston Oaks was born in Gillette, Wyoming, and by the time he was 10 years old, he'd lived in 10 states, South Dakota, Colorado, Nebraska, Ohio, New Jersey, others. He spent the greater part of his childhood in Chattanooga, Tennessee, He enlisted in the U.S. Army after high school and became an intelligence officer stationed in the Republic of Korea, Fort Jackson, Fort Gordon, Fort Bragg, Fort Carlson, Fort Huachuca, Presidio, Monterey, and Los Angeles Air Force Base. He retired from the U.S. Army in 2004 with an honorable discharge. West began writing professionally in 1997 and won the Bram Stoker Award for his first novel, Scarecrow Gods, in 2005. His co-written collection of short stories titled Appalachian Galapagos was nominated for the Pushcart Prize for Short Fiction. In 2008, his novella, Redemption Roadshow, was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award for Long Fiction. And now here is The Blue Healer.
5: Duby Banks peddled furiously, well aware that he was already late getting home. If he wanted to see his friend, he needed to hurry no way could his parents find out where he was going not now not ever if they did he'd probably be grounded for life his neon green schwinn rattled down the hard-packed clay path spinning wheels whipping through the tops of the weeds only deer stray dogs and the occasional kid with dreams of glory ever made it down this lonely way Doobie reached the final downhill slant and coasted, standing high on the pedals, letting the wind rush through his hair, feeling like Lance Armstrong racing down the French Alps on his way to another Tour de France victory. The oaks and elms crouching along the sides of the road became his audience, watching in silent awe as he broke the world record and won the race. When Doobie hit the bottom of the slope, he slowed, pumping his arms into the air. He imagined the cheers of a thousand fans. His smile lasted a full minute before it faded. What he'd give for a thousand friends. Heck, what he'd give for just one. Brett Brady had been his best friend until they'd sent him away to the nuthouse two months ago. Doobie remembered the moment clearly, his best friend cutting his own hair out in huge chunks and screaming at the top of his lungs about dogs and kids and fire and how he couldn't breathe. What else could Brett be but crazy? And now everyone avoided Doobie as if crazy was contagious. People were stupid— Crazy wasn't contagious. Crazy was just crazy. At least Doobie had the Blue Healer as a friend. Doobie and the Blue Healer didn't play any games together, and they didn't do things that normal friends did. But that was okay with Doobie. They talked a lot, of sorts. Blue Healer showed Doobie things that he never even thought existed. More than anything, Doobie felt a need to be friends with the Blue Healer. After all, if there was anyone in the universe who needed friends more than Doobie Banks, it was the Blue Healer. The path dead-ended at a squat building made entirely of cement blocks. The windowless, one-story structure had been stained by years of neglect. Built with no doors, the only possible entrance seemed to be an empty space near the bottom of the wall where a cement block had once been. Like the first day he'd seen it, the empty space yawned with as much mystery as a black hole. Duby Banks skidded to a stop in front of the building. He dropped his bike and plopped down in front of the empty space in the wall. He removed his backpack and pulled out a pack of red licorice, a portable radio, and a full bottle of water. He spent several seconds tuning the radio until he found the right station. Then he adjusted the volume and sat it beside him. He ripped open the package of licorice and pulled two pieces of the long, thin candy out. He began chewing on one as he stuck the other inside of the small opening. Within seconds it disappeared. Duby grinned as he opened the water bottle and took a deep draught. When he'd finished, he passed the bottle through. This time, a whitish-blue hand grabbed it before Doobie had pushed it all the way into the darkness. I bet you're thirsty, said Doobie. There hasn't been much rain lately. My dad says it's because of all the pollution. He says that by the time I'm in college, we'll all have to wear gas masks. The hand appeared again. This time, it was empty, palm up. Doobie didn't miss a beat as he pressed a piece of licorice into it. The hand disappeared back into the hole, and Doobie began telling the occupant of the concrete cube about his day at school, especially when Mrs. Wheaton caught Johnny Beamer and Eddie Gowan putting superglue on Missy Puckett's chair. It wasn't until the package was empty that he stopped talking. "'Enough about me. What about you? How was your day?' asked Doobie, placing his hand in the opening. The hand appeared and grasped Doobie's in a soft embrace. Doobie closed his eyes and allowed the images to flow. After a few minutes, he opened his eyes and exclaimed, "'That's where it is.' Ten minutes later, Duby swung down Beatrice Boulevard, sweat and worry twisting away in the wind. Jumping the bike over the curb, he took a shortcut through the yard, barely missing his mother's rose bushes. He spied her through the dining room window, sitting down at the table with his dad. For a single moment, their gazes met, and Doobie knew he was in trouble." skidding to a stop by his dad's pickup he let the bike flop and winged his book bag over his shoulder as he leapt clear all in one smooth move breathlessly he burst into the dining room and took his chair he grabbed a serving bowl filled with peas and began to spoon them on his plate before his mother could say a word the next morning during breakfast he remembered what the blue healer had told him he finished his cereal and placed the bowl in the sink his mother leaned against the counter drinking a cup of coffee Doobie glanced at her then looked away. What if she didn't believe him? What if she found out about the blue healer? No way would she allow him to keep visiting, and if he couldn't go, then how would the poor man get fed? Out with it, young man. His mother had her patented arched eyebrows, devious smile, you-aren't-going-to-fool-me look. I've been thinking, Doobie began. That's a start, she said. Really, Mom, I've been thinking about your wedding ring. Her smile disappeared as she gazed at the sink. Thinking about it won't bring it back, Doobie, she sighed. Trust me, I've tried. Maybe, but let me ask you this. What if the plumber actually found the ring and didn't tell you? What if he took it to a pawn shop and got money for it? His mother stared at him for a moment. You thought all of that yourself? Sure, he said. Which pawn shop would it be in, do you think? Probably the one in Henryville. Trading it here in Providence would be too close to home. His mother's lips tightened the way they did right before she yelled at him. Dooby braced himself, but instead of yelling, she took a sip of her coffee. Dooby noticed her hands shaking slightly. What do you think? he asked. I think you're going to be late for school, she said evenly. Dooby noticed the clock. If he didn't hurry, he was going to be late. Grabbing his books, he hugged his mom and leapt out the door and onto the porch. His bike lay where he'd dropped it the night before. Soon he was speeding down the street, channeling Lance Armstrong as best he could. The day went quickly. Besides Vin Montgomery puking in the hallway and Monray Simpson getting caught cheating in algebra, the day was like any other. As soon as the final bell rang, releasing everyone for the weekend, Doobie was out the door and on his bike, pedaling madly for the quick mart, and then onto the Blue Heelers. In the quick mart, he bought two bottles of soda, two sticks of beef jerky, and a package of licorice. As he slid onto his bike, his dad pulled up in his Bonneville with the words, Warren County Sheriff circling a black star on the door. His father pushed the brim of his tan cowboy hat up a little and gave Doobie a pointed look. Doobie walked his bike over. "'What'd you buy in the store?' asked his dad. "'Some candy and soda.' "'That all. Some jerky, too.' "'Where'd you get the money, son?' "'Left over from Grandma's visit,' said Doobie, suddenly feeling like his dad's interest was a little more than normal. "'Ah.' "'Where are you going?' asked Doobie, trying to change the subject. "'Over to Henryville.' "'Ah,' said Doobie, knowing exactly why his father was going. His father stared at him for several long moments, then nodded sharply. "'You best be getting on home, then. No lollygaggling, you hear?' "'Yes, sir,' said Doobie. Ten minutes later, Doobie dropped his bike and threw himself down before the dark opening in the concrete building. He passed a soda inside. Right after he opened the soda, he heard the flit of Blue Heeler opening the other. They drank together for a moment. Then, as they shared the licorice— Duby described the events of the day, especially how Monterey had tried to run away after she got caught cheating. She'd actually jumped out the window and was halfway across the parking lot before the teacher had time to react. After the tale, Doobie became more serious. He laid his hand in the opening. Why is it that you won't tell me why you're in here? You know I'm your best friend, right? The blue healer's hand appeared and Doobie grasped it. His mind filled with images of fifty blue healer dogs chasing, cavorting, and dancing among the weeds, their lips peeled back in pure joy. Doobie recognized the emotion as the same joy he felt when he rode his bike. Rabbits and fowl and butterflies fled in panic. The dogs ignored them, their attention only on the impossibly angled turn. Doobie jerked his hand away. No, that's not the reason. You're in here for a reason. He placed his hand back in the opening. The blue healer touched him, the contact immediately filling his mind with the image of a blue healer licking him on the face, eyes hopeful and pleading. The image was so real that Doobie brought his hands up to ward off the dog, but without the contact, the image disappeared. Come on, said Doobie. The hand pulled back into the darkness. Doobie waited for several minutes, but it didn't appear again. Come on, said Doobie, trying another strategy. Maybe I can help you get out of here. He placed his hand in the opening and waited. Come on, he said. Like a spider, the hand walked across the earth, fingers tentatively moving onto Doobie's hand. Then the fingers closed and gripped. Tighter and tighter they gripped until Doobie cried out. Instead of releasing him, the blue healer's hand gripped even tighter and then images flowed. Images of dogs and men and children and police cars flashed in his mind too fast for him to understand. It was as if the blue healer was trying to find something to say, searching through his own memories. Finally, the images slowed and then halted until only one single image filled him. A newspaper banner from June of 1985. Then the image and the hand were gone. Doobie heard the sound of a car on the old dirt path behind him. He stared longingly into the hole a moment, deciding whether to stay or not to stay, but the sound of tree limbs scratching the sides of the car convinced him of the driver's determination. Doobie didn't need to be discovered here. The last kid they'd found wandering on the path had been Brett Brady, and that was the day he'd gone insane. Without a word of goodbye, Doobie tossed the two sticks of beef jerky inside, jumped on his bike, and picked his way through the trees. After a dozen yards, he dropped his bike and dove among the ferns. Although partially obscured by finger-thick branches and sassafras leaves, he had a window of foliage where he could see the front of the cement building. Rocks and dirt crunched as the car pulled to a stop and idled. Doobie sucked in air as he recognized the star on the door. His dad sat behind the wheel staring at the building. Occasionally he'd sip from a metal travel mug that Doobie had given him last Father's Day. Doobie couldn't have been more surprised... He'd never thought that his dad would know about the man, but then his dad was a deputy sheriff in Providence, so he really should know about everything. Funny how his dad had never mentioned the Blue healer. That night, his father spent the dinner staring silently at him. Through the salad, the main course, even during the ice cream dessert, Doobie tried to ignore his father's stares. Even his mother barely spoke. Doobie couldn't have been happier when the dinner was over. He made himself scarce and watched television in his room until midnight. Duby woke up late the next morning. He heard his mom banging around downstairs. His dad's Bonneville wasn't in the driveway, which was strange. His dad hardly ever worked on the weekends unless there was some big case going on. Duby waited until he heard his mom go into the laundry room before he ran through the kitchen and out the back door. By the time she screamed his name from the front door, he'd made it halfway down the block. Instead of acknowledging her, he peddled harder, knowing that he was far enough away to deny that he'd heard her. He didn't like lying, but he had to in this case. As sure as he knew that Peggy Washoe's hair was red, he knew his mother would have a list of chores for him, and he didn't have the time. While watching Charlie's Angels last night, he'd thought of an idea. He'd never known that the library kept copies of old newspapers. Now, he'd go check to see if they could help him. He'd find a way to make it up to his mother later. She'd understand. He was sure of it. When he arrived at the library, he discovered that the place didn't open for ten more minutes. Doobie parked his bike in the empty rack and waited on the steps. In his haste to get by his mother, he'd forgotten to eat breakfast. Now his stomach protested. Then he thought of the blue healer and toughened up. As far as Doobie knew, the man only ate what Doobie brought him. The back of his neck tickled as he remembered a movie he'd once seen where an imprisoned man ate spiders and beetles and the occasional rodent. Doobie shuddered and promised himself that he'd bring the blue healer something more substantial to eat the next time they met. Brett Brady, back before he went crazy and was still his best friend, was the one who'd introduced Doobie to the Blue Healer. Brett had always brought food when he visited the man, so Doobie had continued the tradition. Doobie remembered how scared he'd been when he'd first seen the building and been told of its lone occupant. After all, what would a person have to do that was bad enough to have a prison built around them? But Brett had dispelled his fears with implacable logic. They arrest all sorts of innocent people My dad talks about it all of the time. He says it's a conspiracy to get rid of people the government don't like, Brett said. My dad wouldn't arrest anyone unless they were guilty, said Doobie. Sure he would, argued Brett. Remember the law? Innocent till proved guilty? Everyone's innocent, then the lawyers show up and make them guilty. Doobie remembered how he'd stared at his friend, recognizing that parts of the argument were patently wrong. Before he'd been able to argue, Brent had continued, that don't matter, anyway. There are plenty of reasons that Old Blue could be locked up in there, Brett said, pointing at the building. I've talked to him, though, and he wouldn't harm a soul. You talk to him? Of course, said Brett. Kind of, he added. I mean, Old Blue don't speak like you and me. What do you mean? Magic, said Brett, grinning. Just stick your hand in there and you'll see what I mean. Stick your hand in the hole and feel the magic. Doobie had stared at the hole, imagining all of the things that could lie inside. All the world's boogeymen, a thousand spiders, an army of fire ants, a desiccated raccoon crawling with maggots. And his best friend wanted him to stick his hand in the hole. Never had a hole so dark and low yawned so greatly. The rattle of keys brought him back to the present. He stood and turned as the library door creaked open. A white-haired woman that he'd met once or twice before smiled as she held the door for him. Once inside, Duby explained what he wanted. The woman took him to a special computer and explained how they'd archived the newspapers all the way back to 1978 and were waiting on some money from the government so they could archive all the way back to 1950. She keyed up 1985 for Doobie, and she showed him how to scroll through each issue. Confident that he understood the operations, she returned to her desk near the front door. Doobie found June. He didn't know what he was looking for, but figured that it would jump out. At least he hoped so, because for such a small town there was an awful lot of news. He scrolled past reports of houses burning, car accidents, crop cultivation, births, deaths, weddings, divorces, and everything under the sun. A report of some dogs destroyed because they'd been killing sheep and chickens all over the county held his interest briefly. Doobie checked the article and found that they were blue healers. Coincidence? According to the report, three dozen were placed inside a fence, then shot. The bodies were burned in the event they had any rabies. A report of a robbery over in Henryville made him pause, but when it said that no one was caught, he knew it couldn't be the Blue healer. Doobie couldn't believe that his friend would rob a bank. No way. When Doobie reached the headlines for June 20th, he stopped and stared at the screen. The headline read, Another One Gone. Doobie scanned the article and read about the missing boys. Since October of the previous year, six boys had disappeared from Providence. Other than the boys all being ten years old, the police were dumbfounded and had no leads. The bodies of the other five boys had turned up along the county roads naked, dead, and wearing a dog collar. Duby felt slightly queasy. Is that what the Blue Healer did? Is that why he was locked up in the private prison? Duby stared at the word dog collar and thought of the Blue Healers dancing in the meadow. It just couldn't be. He forced himself to read further, wondering why such a huge event had gone unmentioned. With all of the rumours, something like this would have been perfect fodder for the gossipers. Parents would have loved to use the threat of who the newspaper called the kennel master as a boogeyman to keep the kids in line. So why hadn't they? What would keep an entire town quiet about such an awful event? Doobie read on. The newspaper reported nothing but speculation and worry until June 25th. A mailman delivering mail along Route 16 found the boy. Naked, dead, and wearing a dog collar. The investigation was at a standstill. Doobie stared at the word dog collar again. His hands went to his own neck. He couldn't help but wonder about the Blue healer. On June 27th, they arrested Milner Mines, age 54, for the murders of six young boys. The sheriff admitted that Mr. Mines had been a suspect and that his answers during questioning were unsatisfactory. A picture of a small man dressed in dungarees being led into the county courthouse in handcuffs filled the front page. Duby read through the Associated reports. He let the kids play with the dogs all of the time. I thought it was wrong for a man his age to like kids. I knew it was him all along. They should have known him right from the start. It seemed like everyone had an opinion. Then Duby saw a familiar name. The Banks family will be holding a memorial at their home on Beatrice Boulevard. The Banks family? Beatrice Boulevard? Duby felt dizzy as he read the words. Freddie Banks, only son of Martin and Susan Banks. Those were his parents' names. That was the street he lived on. Who is Freddie? The words swam before his eyes. Who is was Freddie? "'Freddie Banks, only son of Martin and Susan Banks. "'Only son of Martin and Susan Banks. "'Only son.' "'Doobie staggered to his feet. "'He reached out for balance and knocked over a magazine display. "'The librarian stood, but Doobie was already past her. "'By the time she made it out from behind her desk, "'he had shot out the door and onto the sidewalk. "'The world swam before his eyes. "'Susan Banks hung up the telephone. "'He held her hands to keep them from shaking.' She said it wasn't until she returned to her desk that she realized what year he'd asked for. Then she'd been unable to get back to him in time before he saw... "'We should have destroyed it all,' said Martin. He sat at the table with a drink in his hand. "'We should have... "'We couldn't hide it forever, Martin. "'One day we'd have to tell him anyway. "'Something like this is just too big to hide.' "'Nothing's too big to hide,' he sneered, gulping half the amber liquid. Susan Banks carried a cold glass of milk over and placed it beside the plate of cookies on the kitchen table. She put her hand on Doobie's shoulder, but he shrugged it off. The temperature outside raged. Although they had air conditioning, they barely used it. Instead, they opened the windows and turned out the lights. Air seeped in from the screen door to the porch. Light pushed through the gauzy white curtain over the sink. Although it was cooler, a gloom captured everything. "'Good thing I was driving by and saw his bike. No telling what he would have done,' said Martin. "'I'm sitting right here. You can talk to me.' Susan leaned across the table and kissed her husband on the forehead. "'Yes, it was a good thing. Thank you, honey.' "'Mom, I'm sitting right here.' She placed her hand on Doobie's cheek and stared lovingly at him. "'I know. I know you're sitting here. It's just been a stressful day.' All three of them sat around the small, circular kitchen table. Susan sat between Doobie and his dad. Martin pulled a thin cigar from his breast pocket. "'Not inside,' said his mother. Martin grumbled and shoved it back into his shirt pocket. "'Why didn't you tell me about my brother?' asked Doobie in a small voice. "'Oh, hell.' His dad finished the rest of the amber liquid in the glass." He stood, walked to the counter, and poured himself another. His mother grabbed Doobie's left hand and held it in her own. Large, slow tears tracked gently down her cheeks. "'Oh, Doobie, we were going to tell you. I promise we were. Does everyone know about him? Those were crazy times back then. Nothing like that man had ever happened to our town, you know? All those kids killed. My—' Her voice choked. Son killed. "'I just don't understand why you wouldn't tell me about him. Why no one ever talks about him.' She shook her head and stared into space. "'We didn't want to remember. We didn't want to have to relive all the things that were done, especially when—' "'Susan!' Doobie's dad strode across the room and placed his hand on her shoulder. "'That's enough now.' He sat down in his chair and placed the glass in front of him. "'Doobie, don't take what I'm about to say as me being mad at you,' he began his dad. "'But this has nothing to do with you.' He lifted the glass to drink from it, then decided not to. He placed it on the table and wrapped both of his hands around it as if to keep them busy. This business of your brother happened years before you were born. You didn't even know him. It was our loss. Remember that he was our son. We loved him like we love you. Susan stared at her hands as they held Doobie's hand in a firm grip. She nodded as her husband spoke. When he finished, she added, her voice husky, Just because you weren't the first doesn't mean we love you any less. Truth be told, we probably love you more. After all, we have love enough for two sons and only one son to give it to. A truck with a bad muffler cruised down the street in front of the house. A dog barked in the neighbor's backyard. No one spoke for a long minute. Doobie's dad was the first to break the silence. He reached into his front pants pocket and came out with a gold wedding band. Seems like we're ready for some good news. Look, darling. He held the ring in the palm of his hand and held it out to her. Doobie's mother released her grip around her son's hands, grabbed the ring, and threw her arms around her husband's neck. Oh, honey, thank you so much. Martin chuckled, Don't thank me, thank the kid. He's the one pointed it out. What? She stared at Doobie wide eyed. You mean he was right? One hundred percent. I was coming back from the county lockup when I saw him run out of the library. Thanks to Doobie, our plumber, one Herman Moore, now has an all expense paid vacation behind bars for a while. I bet with a little digging we'll find out that he's done this before. Doobie smiled as feelings began to filter back. He grabbed a cookie and took a small bite. He couldn't help but think about his brother. He wanted to ask so many questions. Crumbs rained down on the Formica tabletop. He licked a finger and scooped them up. And the pawn shop over in Henryville, she asked? Yep. I have to admit I couldn't help wonder how Dooby knew, but it was the pawn shop owner who ID'd Herman Moore. Dooby, how did you know? How did you figure it out? Doobie thought about stalling, but the question had been inevitable. Although he'd probably get into trouble, he didn't want things hanging over his head anymore. Too many lies had passed between them. The prisoner told me, his dad smiled. "'What prisoner would that be?' "'You know,' said Doobie. "'No, I don't know,' said his dad, his smile faltering a little. "'I didn't know at first that he'd been the one. I mean, no one ever told me, so I had no idea that boys had gone missing.' Dooby, what are you talking about?' asked his mother. "'I'm talking about the man they arrested, Milner Mines,' he said. As the words left his mouth, his parents' eyes widened. I didn't know he'd killed them. I thought he was—' Dooby Banks, where'd you hear that name?' asked his mother.' His father choked down the contents of the glass, a morose smile taking shape. "'Where'd you hear that name?' she shouted, shaking Doobie by the shoulders. "'It was in the newspaper. I read the name in the newspaper. Stop it. You're hurting me, Mom.' She released her grip and hugged herself. "'I never wanted to hear that name again.' Neither did I,' said his dad. "'We called him Blue Heeler,' said Doobie. Guilt settled along his small shoulders. "'We thought he was nice. We didn't know about the murders. We just didn't know.' Susan stared at her son. "'We?' "'He didn't commit the murders, son,' said his dad. "'What?' asked Doobie. "'Oh, we sure thought he did, but he never did anything. "'He was an innocent man.' "'But the newspapers! Then who?' "'The next month another kid went missing, "'and we found out it was this drifter living in an old abandoned tobacco silo "'over near the county line.' "'He told you?' asked Susan. "'Yeah, he knew all about the ring. "'He knows lots of stuff that no one else knows. "'Then when I asked him why he was locked up, "'he told me to look in the newspaper for the answer.' Doobie felt more relieved than he'd expected. Not only had he told his parents what he'd been hiding from them, but he'd also discovered that his only friend in the world wasn't guilty of anything. Wait, if he's not guilty, then why is he still locked up? Who are you talking about? asked Susan, her voice rising. Milner Mines, said Doobie, the blue healer. Why do you have him still locked up in that building? Doobie's dad stared back at him. Doobie's mother's eyes were impossibly wide. But Doobie, Milner Mines died in 1985, she said doobie looked from his mother to his dad and back again and who is the prisoner doobie felt a moment of panic mixed with elation if the blue healer wasn't guilty of anything then he could go free doobie could finally see what he looks like they had the chance to be real friends doobie stood where are you going asked his mother to tell him that he's free said doobie then he ran out the door he jerked his bike out of the open trunk of his father's bonneville righted it on the driveway and sped off he heard the screen door open behind him. "'Doobie Banks, get back here!' He ignored the call and pedaled harder. When he reached the end of the block, he glanced over his shoulder and saw his dad's Bonneville backing out of the driveway. Dooby swerved off the road and down a steep marshy embankment to the creek bed below. Within minutes, he was pedaling down the well-known path towards the Blue Heeler. He remembered promising to bring the man some food, but then realized that the Blue Heeler was going to go free tonight. They could go to a restaurant together. Maybe his mother would fix them some pork chops and macaroni and cheese.' Doobie skidded to a stop. He heard a vehicle turn onto the road from the highway far up the lane, followed by the sounds of branches scraping metal. Blue Healer! Hey! shouted Doobie breathlessly. Hey, Blue! You can go free! His dad started honking the horn. Doobie placed his hand in the opening. Come on, talk to me! A blue hand slowly appeared. Doobie reached out and grasped it. Images immediately flooded his mind. Blue Healers running through a meadow. Blue Healers penned into a stable ringed by chicken wire. Laughter as drunken men shot each Blue Healer. A gasoline can was emptied on the still-twitching corpses of Blue healers. The smell of burning Blue healers. His dad's car was almost upon them. The honking sounded like a long, ugly peal. The images continued. He saw his dad and mother, but younger. He saw the faces of many men and women of Providence that he recognized. He saw walls being bricked around him until nothing was left. No door. No window. No light. No air. No way to breathe. The Bonneville hit this clearing too fast. His dad struggled for control and almost struck a tree, but at the last minute managed to stop. Before the engine died, his dad leaped out of the car. His mother jumped out of the other side. Doobie stood and smiled. His mother ran up and smacked him across the cheek. You come when I call you, she yelled. But I wanted to tell him that he could go free. Doobie's dad knelt and inspected the hole. He glanced inside, then stood. We should have torn this thing down years ago. We just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. I saw both of you there. Here, I mean. I, I saw you when he was being imprisoned. "'Doobie felt his cheek. "'If you knew he was innocent, then why didn't you let him go?' "'Because it was too late,' said his dad, "'coming back from the truck with the flashlight. "'What we'd done couldn't be undone.' "'He knelt on the ground and poked the flashlight into the hole. "'He can be dead. I've talked to him. "'Brett talked to him.' "'That's the kid that went crazy?' asked his dad. "'Yeah, but I'm not crazy. "'How did I know where your ring was, Mom? "'How did I know to look in the newspaper for that exact year? "'I was talking to him when you arrived.' Doobie's dad stood and held out the flashlight. Here, he said, take a look for yourself. Doobie's mother put a hand on his shoulder and held him fast. Susan, he needs to see for himself, countered his dad. Doobie stared into his parents' eyes, unable to understand what was happening. His logic was impervious, so why were they acting this way? She released her grip. Doobie took the flashlight and knelt to the same opening he'd knelt at for the past several months. He stared intently as the light plumbed the darkness. Near the opening he spied empty wrappers licorice gum potato chips and other sorts of snack food wrappers lay open and empty soda cans lay empty and scattered blue healer where are you come into the light so i can see you he scanned the whole room and didn't see anyone he shone the light on the ceiling and on the walls from his vantage point he couldn't see into the near right hand corner he wedged his arm and his head into the hole and angled for a better view this was our shame doobie said his dad we were so angry said his mother so damned angry said his dad Doobie angled far enough so that he could sweep the light into the corner. When he did, his breathing stopped. A dead man, wearing work boots and dungarees, lay in repose, skeletal legs and arms splayed at odd angles. A skeletal hand grasped an empty beef jerky wrapper. Duby screamed and crawled out of the opening back into the light. When we caught the real killer, we argued about opening this place up, said his dad. No one was brave enough to do it, though. Doobie stared wild-eyed at his parents, unable to grasp the events that had transpired. He'd spoken to someone. He'd spoken to something. So where was he now? Where was it now? Doobie dropped the flashlight and placed his hand in the opening. So we left him there for us to remember. The building was here to remind us of how nasty life can become. Blue Healer, where are you? Come to me, Blue Healer. His dad reached down to grab him, but Doobie shrugged him off. We left him here to remind us of how awful we can become. Blue Healer, where are you, darn it? His mother began to weep. Blue Healer? Nothing. Blue Healer, where are you?
3: Wes and I have read together on a few occasions uh, one memorable Mardi Gras show at Twilight Tales here in Chicago. He was in Chicago at the time because, among other things, uh, he was dating a Chicagoan, a writer, Ivan Navarro. He's now married to her. She was an old friend of mine then and remains so to this day. In addition to his novels, Wes's work has appeared in comic books, IDW Publishing, professional writing guides, magazines, anthologies. He's been hailed by his contemporaries as, quote, one of the few new writers who will help redefine the field of dark literature for the future. So saith award-winning writer Edward Lee. Tonight's reading of The Blue Healer was by Rejan Khanna. Rejan is a graduate of the 2008 Clarion West Writers' Workshop and a member of the New York-based writing group Altered Fluid. His fiction has appeared, or is forthcoming, in Shimmer magazine and The Way of the Wizard, among others. And he's received honorable mention in The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror and The Year's Best Science Fiction. He sometimes writes articles for Tor.com and occasionally narrates podcasts for sites like PodCastle, Lightspeed, Pseudopod, The Starship Sofa, and now Tales to Terrify. Rejean also writes about wine, beer, and spirits at fermentedadventures.com. Well, there we have it. Remember what it was you were asked to remember?
6: Hmm?
3: Ah, yes. Pick up a couple copies of Slices of Flesh tomorrow. Help Literacy and the HWA Hardship Fund. As always... Mention our gatherings in the Nook to your horror-deprived friends. Stop by, leave notes and suggestions, subscribe to us, contribute to the cause by clicking on those donate buttons, and and I hope you have a good week. And by the way, I wanted to ask this before. What do you think of so-called classic horror? Old stuff, you know, stuff from... Stuff from your kidhood, tales your granddad read that gave you chills and made you afraid of the alley at night. The stories that filled your attic with potential. Echoes that made the basement teem with unwholesome life. Lovecraft, Machen, Poe, Browning. Yes, Browning, Robert Browning. There, there goes my heart's abhorrence. And, uh, that's my last duchess, painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. That Robert Browning. Well, I'm looking forward to doing a bit of that sort of thing in weeks and months to come. So anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Go. Coats on. Hats set. Venture forth. And on to home and night to come and morning, we hope, to follow— and there have been reports of rabbits on side streets. Yes, yes, be careful. It's almost Easter. And when you get home, don't dawdle. Off to bed. Slip down and slumber. And when you do, have pleasant dreams. Mm.